Hello everybody and welcome to episode 72 of State of the Game, the golf podcast that talks about stuff that matters. My name's Rod Murray and what matters on this episode is, of course, the most talked about rule snafu since... Well, uh, last year, actually. But anyway, we'll uh, come to that (laughs) shortly. Joining me to discuss Lexi Thompson, TV call-ins, scorecard penalties, and anything and everything else that might constitute a lively discussion, as promised on Twitter yesterday, is blogger, podcaster, critic, course architect, Golf Channel regular Jeff Shackelford. Jeff, hard to believe it's been more than three weeks since we had a controversial rule situation, but thankfully there's still plenty of fuel in this fight. We we kind of got through the Masters with one, although Sergio's ball definitely moved. But uh, anyway, yeah, hey, how you doing? Great. (laughs) Uh, Let's move along. We might uh, might have another episode of that. Uh, Also with us today, from here in Australia, former touring pro turned course architect, columnist, commentator, general font of knowledge about the game, Mike Clayton. Clayton, good to have you aboard today, as always. Thank you, Rod. And finally, but most importantly, the man responsible for getting this little shindig together today. He's a nine-time winner on the world's professional tours and one of two Australian amateur champions on today's panel. They don't include you or me, Shaq. <laughs> uh, it's a big hello to Matt Goggin. Matt, really appreciate, appreciate you taking time. Looking forward to hearing a player's perspective on some of these issues yeah. we're going to touch on today. A, a, a paranoid player at that. <laughs> well, as you were just mentioning off air, I'm keen to hear about some of that. First things first, gents, let's try to find the things that we agree on before we come to the fun stuff of what we may not. Do we all agree that Lexi mismarked her ball in that Saturday round? Jeff? Um, yes, she, she, she mismarked her ball once we were able to zoom in and slow it down. I, I would agree with that. <laughs> There'll be lots of buts and ifs, I'm sure, with it. And yes. today, Matt, uh, it seemed pretty clear. Matt, I, I imagine you... Yeah, yeah, like she didn't put the ball down back in exactly the same spot. That's fair. Clades, I know that uh, you agree because uh, I've seen plenty of your tweets and you and I have have all discussed it. So I guess we all agree that if that's the case, then she deserves the two-shot penalty. I suppose this is where it starts to get contentious. I'll come to you about this first, Jeff Shackelford. One of the big yes, as chairman of the Lexi Defence Fund. (laughs) Yes, go ahead. (laughs) One line, three Christians. uh, the, the fact that the penalty came the following day, this has been one of the main three points of contention. So we'll come to the TV viewers calling in shortly. That's one issue. This notion that once the round is over, perhaps, and the card's been signed, you shouldn't be allowed to retrospectively apply a penalty. For or against that, Jeff? Yeah, of course I'm against that. It's absurd. It's because if she does it on Sunday and the person calls Sunday evening, uh, the tournament's in the books, and it's like it never happened. But it happened on Saturday, and of course it's ridiculous. And it's ridiculous she got a two-shot penalty uh, for uh, signing an incorrect card when she didn't know it was an incorrect card. Yeah, I mean, the fact that we're, we, we, haven't, we didn't figure that out after 1968 is really kind of astonishing. And, then and that was before all the, uh, the, the ways we have to track scoring now. Mm-hmm. I have no problem with players keeping score still, but it should not be the only way we determine scores, and we shouldn't be penalizing professional golfers playing in front of a large audience on scoring. But anyway. Okay. Matt, what about Sorry, where do you start? No, that's okay. This is this is all the stuff that's been going backwards and forwards, and there's there's two sides to yeah, all of this. Uh, so I mean, I agree, I agree with Jeff. I agree with Jeff on the scorecard stuff. I think um, retroactively giving penalties, that's fine. If you if you did something wrong or you're, you misdropped or if you looked at someone the wrong way and got a penalty for it, then um, the next day, that that's fine. But I think the original intent of the scorecard was to catch someone who cheated. Mm-hmm. I had He had a four, he wrote down a three, you cheated, basically, or even knowingly or unknowingly. I don't know who started the, uh, the disqualification or who applied that for someone who got a penalty after the fact. I don't think... Um, that you should get invoked, you know, an extra penalty on whether they found out when you found out the penalty, not whether you found out you did it. 
I mean, if you find out 10 minutes later, it's two shots. If you find out just before you sign your scorecard, it's two shots. If you find out one minute out, you've walked out of that 10, it's four. And it used to be a disqualification. It still should be a disqualification if you sign an incorrect scorecard. But that's only if you've written down the wrong score. You can't retroactively add penalties because everyone out there on the course saw what you shot. You had 71. You know, on the next day they add a penalty. Well, it goes to 70, 73. It shouldn't go to 75. I think that's ridiculous. Okay, so it's a, the, the sort of the clerical error. For a clerical error, adding shots, is that the, the kind yeah, of thing? Uh, yeah, and, there's, there's, and, and all that sort of – like you can do away with a lot of the problems of like the double whammy of, well, it wasn't seen, okay – the other players didn't have the guts to mention anything. Or you have, you know, the nefarious intent of some people where it's quite possible, and we've had this happen on the PGA Tour where, you know, someone's intent came into question with Marco Dawson um, pinging Brandel Chambly, and then there was one later on in the year with Esteban Toledo where he played with him on Friday, Thursday, Friday, and there was a stake tree drop. And he was there giving him the drop, basically, or he's on the other side of the fairway. And then on Sunday, he contacts the rules officials and goes down there and says, I think he, took, he dropped it on the wrong side of the tree. I've had to think about it. Two days later. So Esteban then goes down. They all go down together. He showed him where the tree was, where he dropped it, and they disqualified him. Now, you know, if there was nefarious intent, you have to deal with that in a different way as opposed to disqualifying someone or even adding two shots because you that's not protecting the field. That's actually doing more harm to the field because the guy who had 71 isn't getting 71. Okay. We, uh, first thing, so brave man to pull up Esteban Toledo given his background as a, uh, as a boxer. I would think he'd look up, be able to look after himself in the PJ. <laughs> I want to come back to the whole scorecard issue because I think there's some interesting stuff in there and, and all those points that you raise, and I'm interested in those. Retroactively applying penalties, Clates, I guess it, this com- it comes down to if, you, if you're going to say you can't retroactively if, apply penalties, are we saying that golf is, a, is four separate rounds of 18 holes as opposed to one 72-hole competition? That seems to be... If you went down the route that once the day was over, you couldn't apply the penalty, forget about the scorecard thing, but the penalty for the breach, that's what it seems to be saying. I know that you're not in agreement with that, but is that your sort of sense of what people are suggesting? Yeah, they, they were just suggesting that it's it's four lots of separate 18-hole rounds. I think it's a 72-hole tournament. I don't think it matters where you breach the rule. If you breach the rule before the end, then you should be penalised for it. Hmm. And, you know, the question is, Lexi didn't know she signed the wrong scorecard. Well, I would argue she... Did know. Oh, that's okay. going down this. That's a whole that, that's going down the sea route. That's going down a whole other, uh, a whole other different thing. Yeah, but yeah I, I suppose. So, so, so yeah. when the same thing happened to Nick Faldo in Bali in in the mid nineties, he moved a rock in a bunker, assuming we were playing European tour rules. It came up the next day. He had a seven shot lead on the thirteenth hole on Sunday. Clearly going to win. It came up the next day that. He'd moved a rock in the bunker and Trevor heard and said, Nick, you're DQ'd and you're off the golf course. That was clearly complete madness and there was no intent to cheat. He just, he just got the rule wrong. But there are subtle differences in, as Matt says, nefarious intent. So, I, I mean, I think you can make a case that Lexi did know she signed a wrong scorecard and she, and she tried to get away with it. That's the ultimate view. Now, I don't know. I mean, only she knows. But you're talking about the penalty for intentionally cheating 
versus a scorecard penalty, which are two separate things. If you yeah, think that she knew that she was doing the wrong thing, well, should the penalty be more than two? The fact of scoring an incorrect scorecard because you got caught is a completely separate rule decision. So it shouldn't it shouldn't make any difference. They can address one without without addressing the other. Isn't the issue though then, Matt? Though, um, and leaving aside Lexi, let's talk about that because the intent then becomes the really important thing. So let's say uh, a player deliberately does something uh, and knowing they've breached the rules, signs a scorecard. If you have no other penalty for that, be it two shots or disqualification. The disqualification rule still exists if the committee decides that they think there was nefarious mm-hmm. intent, they can disqualify the player. But if if that can't be determined, you can't say either way or there clearly wasn't intent, they have the option of the two-stroke penalty. If you don't have that either two strokes or disqualifications on top of um, the breach for the, the penalty for the original breach, is there not then an incentive for people to just go, yeah, I think I did, but I'm not going to say anything because if it comes out tomorrow, there's no extra... No extra problem for me. I still only get two shots, as opposed to something extra as well for not having owned up. Well, you're also. You're, I mean, you're assuming that a two-shot penalty isn't a very big deal. Oh, I'm not. No, I'm not. It's, when I, it's not disqualified. When I imagine it's, no, no. I, th- I think a two-shot penalty is a big deal, oh. and then you could then, if you're doing it more than once, I'd imagine you can accumulate lots of penalties if you're a cheat. Um, I think the. I think the problem with a lot of this is a lot of these players aren't cheats. It's um, like brain freezes that there's no there's you think the ball's going to roll or it's moving out of the the position on the green you've marked it on the side and then you, like the Lexi one looks like she came in from the side marked what marked it awkwardly and put it down in front of the coin. I mean, who knows? I mean, really. But um, well, you're a professional. Is well, it possible? Well, Cleats is Cleats. Yeah. Oh, okay, he, okay. Here's he one for me. Okay, that. okay. <laughs> Yeah, here's one for me, right? So here's one for me. Perfect example. I'm playing um, the Tour Championship on the web. I need to have a top five to get my card. It's Saturday, I think. I'm playing well. I'm in a good position. The previous week, we played Preferred Lies. I'm on the 17th fairway, in the middle of the fairway, on TV, and, you know, under pressure, whatever, and I just walk up to my ball, and I just picked it up, thinking it was Preferred Lies. Complete brain freeze, Right. Now, I didn't. Do you think I wanted to pick up my ball in that situation? Do you think I had, you know, do you think I was trying to, I'm going to pick up my ball and get a better lie when I'm in the middle of the fairway hitting a forward into a par five? Of course not. I just picked it up. Brian, my caddy, looked at me and I looked at him. I'm just like, what, what am I doing? It was just, it was purely a reaction to having played preferred lies for two weeks in a row, even though I played two and a half rounds without touching my ball. So I picked it up, so then I get the penalty, I go in, of course, I bogey the last hole on Sunday to miss my card by a shot. That's another story. But um, that stuff happens. I mean, I've come in after, um, like you talk about the scorecard stuff, I've come in after winning tournaments and had to go back through my card and there's so much adrenaline and so much relief or pressure or whatever you want to call it, I couldn't tell you what I had on the third hole accurately. I just couldn't do it. I would look at my caddy and it would just be like, did I have, and sometimes I think I'd have, no, I had a four there. It's like, oh, no, 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 I had a three. So there's a lot more going on than just clear-headed, clear-eyed, you know, things out there. Mm. So I think you need to take into account sometimes. It's easy as a spectator, isn't it? We're just watching it to be entertained. We're not well, <laughs> all the feelings and all that. And, Rod, yeah. I think that's where, yeah, so we could stay big picture here. That's where I'm struggling with the people who can watch this and immediately assume – she was cheating even though nobody caught it in real time and it took somebody calling in and slowing it down and zooming in. And that's where I'm just really struggling to see how this is such a definitive act 
Um, and 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 furthermore, under the change that we we had enacted this week in the decisions, if she does this going forward, they go to her and she says, "No, I was not intending to do that." Uh, she will then be uh, exonerated, as I understand it. Although they won't give an answer on that, which I think is so pathetic. Uh, either yes or no, she said. If you're going to enact a decision based on this outcry, at least give us an answer. But they can't. So, ignoring that. So going forward, she says, "No, I did not intend to move the ball closer," and we have to take her word for it. But now, the way people have reacted to the act, about fifty percent seem to think she cheated. What's that going to do to her as a player now, reputationally, going forward? It's almost worse, I think, under the new scenario because of the way social media works and the way we have access to videos and DVRs and all this stuff, HD. Uh, if we don't enforce the rules the way it was just enforced, uh, does anybody else see that potential that this could actually get worse? I think, to me, the rule the rule change from 2016, I think this is probably where we started to disagree, Matt, where they softened that penalty from automatic disqualification to adding two shots as a as a as an option if uh, if the player couldn't have known they signed an incorrect scorecard, if that's what they've deemed. It makes it black and white, and it was a victory to me because she still had a chance to win that tournament, Matt, and under all those and get into the playoff. No, is that a victory no, for the rule? Be a, no, no, there's no, there shouldn't be any, there shouldn't be a two-shot penalty for accidentally or not knowing about a penalty you got the day before. It makes the two-shot penalty from the day before subject to a, like a double whammy or a doubling up based on when it was found out as opposed to if she broke the rule. She broke the rule, she got a two-shot penalty, right? Mm. It should be further penalty because we found out at a later time. And a lot of those things, I mean, like some players could dob someone in the next day on purpose. Yeah, when there's been right? suggestion that that might have been the case so, here. So, so the, yeah, okay, so the scorecard penalty is a separate issue and, and how that's applied. The scorecard penalty should be a disqualification. So but it should only be used if you write down a three when you knew you had a four. Not for something like this where it that's what that that's that's the that's the reason you have the scorecard penalty. Right. Is a disqualification. Not for, you know, the accidental. There's a fact. And, and to not sorry. You go ahead. No, but but then but then the other intent of the rule is well. If it's a seven, if you sign for a seventy-two when you had seventy-one, that's cool. We don't care if you give yourself extra shots. There has to be a that should be a disqualification as well. I mean, it should be pretty clear. Okay, you either get it right or you you're out. Isn't there? And I'm sure you could construct the rule to go around this, but isn't there just a simple factual problem that as soon as the penalty is applied retrospectively, there is no other possibility but that the scorecard is now incorrect? No, but it's not. You haven't signed an incorrect scorecard at the time you signed it. Right. Well, look, the, the rules committee can do whatever they want. Mm. They can add penalties, take penalties off. They can, you know, we, we know through the history they've done, had applied different rules. But like the Mark Rowe situation, the Podrick Harrington situation, those sorts of things are outrageous and they affect the competition. And that's really what the rules of golf are there for. They're to help the competition. They're to help you get around. They're not to create these ridiculous situations. And, and you could argue that, you know, as Nassim Taleb would say, you know, the more complex something gets, the more fragile it is and the more likely it's going to fail. And I think the rules of golf are getting to the point where they're becoming so complex and the decisions are getting so complex, it's basically failing the game because you have circumstances where Portrick Harrington shoots 71, we watched him shoot 71, 
Canva, who was playing with him, did the thing that a lot of players do, which annoys me, is they sign the card before they tee off. And then when they handed it to him, he looked at it and signed it again. So Harrington's in there, you know, reading out his scores, blah, 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 hands it to him. The rules guy goes, yeah, two signatures, good. And they find out three days later that Cambo had signed it twice. Now, somehow Harrington gets disqualified and his 71 doesn't exist. Well, that's ridiculous. That's that's not what sport's about. Uh, yeah, no, fair cut. And, and that, that's somewhat different, I suppose. It, it, it talks to the complexity of the rules, doesn't it? There's one situation involving a scorecard. Completely, totally different to the situation with the scorecard. Yeah, I mean, look at the long putter situation with the mid-amateur. I mean, there are a lot of people that said he was anchoring his putter during the Masters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, the ball goes too far. I mean, there were simple things they could have done is just say, look, the driver length is this, the longest putter you can have is this, let's move on. But they address it with some complex idea about how the stroke's got to work and people are trying to get around the stroke and then they're trying to get as close to their body as possible and it just it just becomes too complex and too hard to, to navigate. Now, that, that's bad enough for the rest of us, Matt, but as a professional player trying to make your living playing the game, what does all this rule stuff, what's it sort of meant to you? You were sort of suggesting before we came on any players are now paranoid about taking the simplest of drops. Oh, no one on tour takes a drop without a rules official there. Very few guys just because of this reason. I mean, I've had one where my arm wasn't high enough. You know, you take a drop, okay, pick it up, drop it again. It's like, oh, it wasn't quite over shoulder. It wasn't over your shoulder. And then I had someone complain about my shoulders too high. And then I had one where I got disqualified, where I had the sprinkler head was half on the green, half off the green. I was on the sprinkler head. I dropped it. It went on the green. I talked to my playing partners. It's like, is this all right? It's on the green. Like, yeah, yeah, no worries. Okay. I find out 10 minutes before I tee off on Sunday that the same thing had happened to someone else from this playing partner that I had. And he's like, I think we might have got that wrong. I'm not sure, but you might want to ask a rules official. So I play, go into the scoring hut afterwards, call in a rules official, said, this is what happened. And he's like, yeah, you should have placed it instead of dropping it. You're disqualified. Now, I don't think I gained any advantage dropping it on the green versus placing it on the green, but that's the rule of golf. But, you know you then get to the point where no matter what rules situation you come up with, you're paranoid you'll do something wrong, even the simplest thing, because it was a disqualification and it's, you know, it's your livelihood. Welcome to six-hour rounds plus. <laughs> it's all sort of... Yeah, I mean, it all it all adds up. Part of it, I guess. Clates, were things simpler when you played the tour back in the 80s and 90s? Is this partly due to saturation television coverage and more and more of these issues being seen by more people and coming to light that make people like Matt paranoid about taking the simplest of drops? Uh, no, I think playing for more money strangely makes a difference. I mean, when you can make a mistake that costs you 100 grand, perhaps it, I think players have got, got more paranoid because they're playing for more money, so it costs you more, which is doesn't make any sense, but I think it's true. But I'm not sure players know the rules, knew the rules better then than they do now. I don't think so. I just think they're, they're just more careful because as the game goes on, there are more and more kind of players make odd mistakes and get completely, you know, as Matt said, they get whacked for them. So, so they're just not prepared to do it anymore. And Peter Ellis comes on TV and said, I can't believe these guys don't know the rules. But there have been just way too many cases of, Guys getting simple stuff wrong. I mean, Greg Turner hit the ball onto some cables that Sangdale won here. And he took them off and he placed the ball directly under where it was. Moved the cables and put the ball directly under where 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 it was where it was sitting. 
but, he, but because the ball wasn't touching the ground, he should have dropped it. If the ball had been touching the ground, he could place it. If it wasn't touching the ground, he could drop it. So And he signed the card and got DQ, which was... So, you know, not... I mean, half the field might know that rule, half might not. But when stuff like that happens, players hear about it and they just get paranoid. And as Matt said, they just ask rules officials for everything now. So it's kind of understandable because so many simple mistakes have been made because players don't know the rule or they misinterpret it or they... Tours have you know, different rules, as you were pointing to earlier with the Faldo thing. Different tours, tours have different rules. Different rules so, mm. Yeah, uh, you play under. Yeah, well, we had that a few times with the uh, the sprinkle head thing between co-sanctioned European tour events and regular Australian events. We've had guys get pinged for that in Australia. I think they're just too complex. I think you know we there was that I don't know program or I think Jeff was I've heard him talk about it the uh, the new rules of golf how they sort of did a went back through them and tried to come up with all these new ideas. I mean, there's got to be a way to make it a little bit simpler where just drop it all the time or just place it all the time. There doesn't have to be situations where sometimes you drop and sometimes you place and you get confused and you messed it up and it costs you two shots. What, what do you well, we have, that in the, we have that in the new rules where the, the, you can drop. Of course, I don't know why they had to do it. You can drop within an inch of the ground. Uh, that, that seemed a little odd but and struck people as odd. But at least it eliminated the thing you just talked about. Um, and that's a positive step forward. <laughs> do, do you remember the, uh, you know, you used to drop it over your shoulder, Clates? Remember that? Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And you remember how Seve used to, he'd be the king of leaning over and getting as low as possible <laughs> and angling it and trying to, like, roll it off his back. It's just brilliant. <laughs> you would have been good at yeah, Lindo. Yeah, under, that, what? under the, under the <laughs> post, yeah. Clates, you're going to say something? No? Well, yeah, that was a... But that, when you look back, that was a bizarre way of... Because, of course, what you couldn't do was... I mean, now you drop it twice and you place it where it landed. But, of course, if you dropped it over your back, you couldn't see where it landed. So, essentially, you took a, you took a preferred life then. Yeah. Hmm. Indeed. That's what everyone did. But, I mean, now, now you drop it... Now you can see where it lands. So, you place it where it lands on the second drop. So, that was kind of a... Not a significant change, but it was a change to the way that rule worked. Just on the, comp- but the new rule yeah, is basically preferred lay anyway, isn't it? What, can you drop it an inch from the ground? Yeah, about an inch or I think it's an inch, isn't it, Shaq? They've said as low as an inch above the ground, you can yep. drop it, so you can essentially yep. you essentially place it. That's the- well, wait until there's the first calling when yeah. someone's saying it's under an inch. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <You're-> yeah. <laughs> You'll have a 15th club in the bag before long. That'll be a set of vernier calipers so that you can, you yeah, can exactly. get these micro measurements. But I suppose it speaks to something, Shaq, that I did want to ask you about. And we hear lots of complaints about the complexity of the rules of the game. They're too complex, too complex, too complex. Isn't it just a reflection of the nature of the game, much of the complexity of the rules, the nature of the game and the fact that it is so different to other sports? The defined boundaries are so much different. You don't have the straight lines. Intentional hazards are put in the way of the players as part of the playing of the game. Aren't you bound to get more complexity in the playing and by virtue the rules of the game that that cover it uh perhaps but i think really a lot of this goes back to us just drifting so badly from play it as it lies and uh there are so many ways now that we we expect the ball to be presented for us and 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 i think the rules have gotten carried away in trying to over legislate so many things and and then not addressing other things. Uh, I mean, so many of these elements we have are are related to uh, uh, players touching the ball too much. And and you know, you watch old film and you watch or you read old descriptions, and uh, people didn't touch the ball very much. They played it down a lot, and they didn't mark up courses like we mark them up nor now. And 
So some of that had to be done, but some of it, I think, has led to these situations where we have just too many things going on. And then, of course, you throw in the way maintenance has changed things. That adds elements as well. So um, there are many things that have complicated this, but I'm still uh, of the of the the mindset that they're 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 trying to do the right thing. I just don't know though if if uh, this latest decision is really going to be something that 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 makes it better. Oh, and it, that's it that's kind of like what I'm fascinated to by. Me, Shaq, it does. Mm. It brings you, in you judgment. So you agree that yeah, it brings in we judgment. We are going to yeah. yeah. It just which yeah. doesn't make any sense. Uh, I don't. Know. I but think. Then, um, but then here, sorry, Matt. Oh, I was going to say. I, th- I think from like was it 1744 to 1897, everything was perfect. And then as soon as the RNA got involved in 1897, everything's gone downhill. There goes your <laughs> there goes your open invite, Matt. <laughs> yep, there goes your RNA membership. <laughs> well, don't, don't you talk, Jack? I thought you were heading for the Stymie campaign when you started on about the don't touch the. Oh no, but I'm on that. Don't <laughs> worry, you I'll are. be on that next week once we once we wrap up the um, the team event here in New Orleans. I'll, yeah. I'll be back on the the Better Ball uh, Stymie event. Anyway, Clates, what's your take uh, on the complexity uh, of the rules? Is it is it by necessity of the complexity of the game, or is Shaq right? Have we gone crazy, over crazy with the, some of the complex stuff? Trying to make it fair, probably. For everybody. Yes. Yeah. That is a key element. Yeah. I mean, I think the rules work pretty well, really. I mean, it's a complex game. I mean, there are so many different and varied and bizarre situations that happen in the course of however many rounds of golf are played a day. I don't know. How many rounds? Whether 100, 200, 500,000 rounds of golf a day. There are so many bizarre little things that happen that the rules have to cover them all, really, or try and cover them all and come up with So I, I, I've always thought the rules work pretty well. Except for, you know, the, 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 I mean, the worst part of the rules was always the clerical stuff. The Roberto Di Vincenzo stuff was, that was complete madness. And, uh, you know, the, Matt said the Harrington and the, so all that clerical stuff has been, that's been the major failing of the rules, I think. What was your take on the, the, the incorrect scorecard penalty for, for Lexi? And are you in Matt's camp there where, how do you sort of stand there? Well, I th- think there's an argument to make that she knowingly signed the wrong scorecard. She, she knew she moved a ball oh. and she tried to get away with it. Now, if she didn't, accepting that, if you accept there's no intent, then do you think she should get two for the scorecard as well or not? If there's no intent? Yeah. No, she, no they should get the, the, the two shots and that's it. Right, so it's DQ or, or just the penalty for the infraction that was occurred. Incurred, so I suppose that'll that'll uh, seems pretty reasonable. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, then it gets so. I mean, the Faldo thing was clearly shouldn't have been a DQ. Yeah. The, the problem, of course, because... with the problem, of course, with trying to um, determine intent, and this is the problem with these new decisions. I think, Shane, <clears> is you introduce something which is impossible to do definitively. So you introduce greyness deliberately and leave the player yep. open to accusations. And we know Correct. That there are a number of people mm-hmm. who feel that Lexi Thompson did the wrong thing deliberately, and there's a number who think she didn't. That's going to happen either. If you build that into the rules, that's only worse, isn't it? Because now the officials are either going to say, yes, she did that intentionally or no, she didn't. And I I don't see how that sort of helps anybody. Well, um, especially because we, we can't get an answer on her situation or or, or, or and, and, and I'm sorry, but I, I'm now I'm going to vent. The rules people still watch the Dustin Johnson practice putting stroke and ball move on a green that is 14 on the stint meter that is dried out. And say, oh yeah, he caused that to move. They're, they're. I'm sorry, they, they have a different view of the game. They are, they are looking for trouble, 
And I, I, I just I have a big problem with that. There are a lot of people who do not look at that or Lexi Thompson and feel like you can definitively say she was trying to do that. I can turn I can go out to a tour event right now and watch guys go back and replace their ball on polar greens and watch them move the ball all over the place to try to find a level spot that's way more egregious looking than what she did. I can watch. I just got another clip, Clates, last night from another European tour event where a guy left his ball six inches next to the hole and let his playing partner chip up to have it as a backstop. And you can see yeah. him standing right there in the in the image. He is that is cheating. That is against the spirit yeah. of the game. And then, but so I don't understand how these people are looking at these things that are so blatant, but then they seize on things that are so such a gray area matters. Uh, and and last bit of venting here, and then I will let you guys talk. But we are now reintroducing, or we're, we're introducing in these new rules of golf, tapping of spike marks. And the only reason we are doing that is because there is rampant tapping of spike marks now, only it's under the uh, guise of, oh, I got a ball mark here I got to fix. And so they know that, and they're, they're introducing something that I think most players have already said they think is going to be problematic for pace of play and many other things, because they already know players are essentially, in the spirit of the of game, cheating. They're, they're, they're tapping stuff all the time. So I just think there are many, many more egregious things going on than what she did, which to me is, is not provable. And, and difficult to pin down, and and we're mostly ignoring those, although the spike mark tapping rule is acknowledging it in a, in a different way. End of rant. I know it's an audio format, but hands up everyone who loves Shaq on a rant. I've got my hand up high in the air here. I thought that was magnificent stuff, uh, and more of it. Matt, I was staggered to hear Mickelson's comments at the Masters the week after the NA talking about rampant, loose ball marking on the greens. Has that been your experience? I'm not naming names, but do you, do you agree with that? I mean, it's not something I've ever looked for, but is that No, no not really. I mean, I think there's there's been a player in particular who's, who has a reputation. I don't think there's a lot of guys that have reputations. I, I, I don't necessarily agree with Shaq on this spike mark tapping thing because I really don't see that very often. Rarely have I seen someone tap down a spike mark that wasn't in a pitch mark. Um, if guys do it, they do it pretty quickly. Um, so I feel like that might be just more like a quality of the service issue than it's saying, well, everyone's just running around tapping spike marks because I couldn't, I couldn't say I've seen it happen, if I've seen it happen twice in uh, playing for 20 years. But, um, but interesting, I think the intent thing is a problem, um, absolutely. I think that just brings in a whole question mark both wise. And and if you are a cheat, then you're just going to say I didn't intend to do it because obviously if you if you're willing to just cheat in front of everybody anyway in a game that you're you're such a pariah and you know it's the worst thing you can call someone mm. and you know you want to crawl under a rock if you get called a cheat. Um, that'll be the quickest way to start a fight on a golf course would be to call someone a cheat. Mm. I mean everyone would would get involved. Um, yeah, I think if you're willing to cheat anyway, just being able to say I intended to do it and get away with it just, is, just makes it an easier out for them. I think I think if the rule's broken, I think if you, I think the the ruling was fine with Lexi. I had more of a problem with the scorecard thing. It's just you know, 
that was my issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think most people accept. And I think if pushed, Lexi would even accept. Looking at the video, she's clearly misplaced the ball, whether she meant to or not. And you have to wear the penalty for that as a golfer. You know that, don't yeah. you, Matt? You know, as you were saying, you absolutely, know, you, yeah. you've made a mistake. You know it, and you accept it. You wish you hadn't done it. Uh, but there you go. So just on that, then, Matt, you mentioned that you said there's one player who's known for it. How much of this stuff gets talked about in the locker room? To put this in perspective, how much cheating or loose playing with the rules actually goes on in professional golf, do you think? That's at the highest. Um, in my look, in my experience, hardly any. Yeah. Most of the discussions about cheating, and this is I, I was I um, I always find this a tricky one because you know the brain's an you know is an assumption machine, and uh, you know it's almost like when you when it's it's hitting shots into hazards. That's where most guys come to come to arguments. It's like did it cross here? Right. Did it cross there? Well, the guy who hits it, he's going to want to see the ball cross where he, you know, he wants it to see to cross that little piece. Yeah. He's looking at his ball and he's looking down at the ground. He's looking at the ball. It's like he's going to see it. And we know through neuroscience that you will see it cross where you want it to cross, right? So it's very difficult when you get in those situations. And also, we're 300 yards away. It might have crossed, you know, 100 yards earlier or, you know, that, that actual line might be way down. It's a very difficult thing to judge. And that's where a lot of the things like, well, this guy hit it in here. There's no way it crossed up there. And then you get arguments over whether it crossed and then the other guy didn't see anything. And, and again, when you're standing off to the side of the tee, your angle's completely different to the guy who just hit it. Th- that's probably the main one. But the other sort of like cheating, if you like, of guys doing stuff, very rarely, mm. very rarely at all. Yeah. And, and this is my problem with this whole conversation over the last few weeks on social media. I mean, I don't get on social media very often just to poke fun at United, and that gets me on TMZ apparently, but that's fine. <laughs> the um, <laughs> It just happened in the last couple of days. But, yeah, th- there seems to be a lot from ex-players or commentators or critiques or critics of the game just as saying there's rampant cheating and mm. everybody knows everyone cheats. The game's full of cheats. You just expect everyone to be a cheat, and it's just not true. It's not true. Um, Do you from get my to experience your level, Matt? In, it- if you if you want to play the game that way, doesn't golf tend to weed that sort of behaviour out earlier in a player's career than well, before they get to the top? I mean, I'm sure Mike is familiar with some of the players that sort of came up through that were probably called cheats that, I don't know, went on and had great careers. Um, you hear about them and then they're probably watched like a hawk anyway. Um, I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm sure it does happen. I mean, guys are out there on their own. They can't be seen. You know, they don't have cameras on. I don't know, maybe it happens. In my experience, just in my sort of naive world, is I haven't seen it very much, if at all. Yeah, the ones that have, the ones that I have seen are ones where it's like, no way that crossed up there, mate. It's back here. It's stuff like that. Clates? Yeah, I mean, Huggy did that anonymous player survey in Europe, and he asked 40 players if they'd ever seen a player cheat, and 39 said they had. I mean, in all my time playing golf, I saw I played with one kid in Taiwan who mismarked his ball clearly by inches. But you know, I don't think. think I mean, I played a lot of golf. I don't think I ever saw anyone cheat, really. Do you need to look but, for it to see it, Clates? Do we all operate under the assumption well, that everyone's going to play by the rules, and you don't really look for it? Do you think maybe? Or yeah, well, yeah, and and I think by definition, you know, the main place where guys are going to going to for want of a better word, cheat is. Um, when their ball moves. And most times they're the only one that sees it and they either can or they don't. So by definition, you don't know if 
most of the team that goes on, you're not going to know about. Only the player himself knows about it or or herself knows about it because it's, you know, you move move something, you know, a stick and and the ball moves in the rough. I mean, that's the, the main place, I guess, where players aren't counting shots. But, you know, I, I, I saw very rare, very rare instances of cheating on the tour in 20 years. But, you know, that Nicholas brought up that case in the President's Cup about the player they stood down out at the, at the World Cup. John Gelson's caddy told me about the same player and said he'd, he'd done some outrageous things and the tour had whacked him for it. And, but no one mentions his name. And But, you know... Is that the right way to deal with it? There have always been those cases when, when Paul Way and Gordon Brand Jr. called Antonio Garrido for moving his ball in Madrid. Now, everyone knew that Antonio Garrido had, had a reputation as a ball fudger. But in the end, even, even two players' words, even the word of two Ryder Cup players against one wasn't enough. Hmm. So players, you know, going back to what Matt was talking about, players don't call stuff against other players because they know it's one word, one player's word against another and the two can't do anything, so they just don't bother. Why are we talking about two different things here? There's, there's just blatant cheating and then there's, there's just sort of fudging things or, or going against the spirit of the, of the game kind of stuff. I mean, aren't there, aren't there a couple different things that cheating's very strong, I understand, isn't the it? cheating's yeah. a very strong it's word in yeah. golf, especially as Matt said, cheating is extremely, strong. And there's a lot of ignorance too. There yeah. is a lot of, yeah. uh, there are many moments that are yeah. seen as, as cheating, but it's just, it's just ignorance mm-hmm. or sloppiness or rudeness or stupidity. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I, Absolutely. I think a lot of the stuff to do with, with hazards and misdropping and taking the wrong, you know, the wrong lines on a drop and all that sort of stuff. I think that, you know, is not necessarily, that's just picking the wrong spot to begin with and all those sorts of stuff. It's not necessarily, it's just ignorance or, or just, yeah. it's not an, it's not an yeah. intentional, oh, okay, I'm going to go right. here because I can get a better line. As a right. player, Matt, we've heard a lot of discussion about this. Why aren't the police players policing each other? Is that a little more difficult than we might assume from the outside? Yeah, especially when rules officials will sign the cards for the person that got called out. So now you become the prior for trying to do the right thing, <laughs> having called Oh, it happens all the time. I mean, that, that does happen, where a guy will be like, I'm not signing his card because of A. Well, do you have a second witness? Well, my caddy saw it. Caddy doesn't count. Has to be another player. Well, the other player was on the other side of the fairway. And so, as and the, player, and the official signs 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 the card, and yeah, away you go. Yeah, it's a it's weird because you're all part of sort of one club, aren't you? It's all it's a yeah, exactly. It all gets a bit, and you've got to play with these guys, don't you? Again and again and again and again, and those all those sorts of things can yeah. affect your game as well. well and, and look, and we're all assuming that there isn't nefarious intent, and like that's the way the game. That's one of the great parts about our mm. game, really. It's one of the attractions, is, isn't it? Maybe, it maybe, maybe, maybe I'm naive. Maybe, mm. like, maybe there are guys out there trying to ping guys and and all that sort of stuff. But other, otherwise, we get this well, happening all the time, and we don't. Well, and to, and to the the example that Clates and I agree on the the players leaving the ball down. I don't even feel like there's a nefarious intent there. I just feel like it's a culture that has changed where. Uh, it's just I, I leave my ball down, and when when we're in another the situation's reversed, you'll do it, and and it's just a cultural thing that has changed in the in the way the game's played. I don't even know if if players are really a, a conscious of, of of what what's going on when they do that. They no, might probably be. not. I mean, I think my, I think most of the time it's just like 
if you're there, you mark it. If you're not there, you leave it. Like that's sort of my sort of thing. You sort of hit your shot in there close and then the other guy's about to chip from the back of the green and you, you say you've hit a long bunker shot or whatever and like he's ready to play. Well, you don't run up there and get in the way of his routine and mark your ball and make him back off. Unless it's match like, <laughs> Well, no, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. But that's more of just like a – you're just letting the game continue. It's different as if you walked up there and then asked the guy, do you want me to mark it? Or like, you know, you walked up there or did something as egregious as that. I mean, that's clearly breaking the rules. As you say, the time when the guy's standing there right next to it and doesn't mark it, I mean, that seems ridiculous. But I guess there yeah. are instances yeah. where you're, you know, you're just letting them play on because you don't want to get in his way because you've got to walk across the ground. Sure, sure. What role, Shaq, has TV played in all of this? We see a lot more golf than we ever used to. Even just in pay TV has brought golf into golfers' homes a whole lot more than it ever used to. We in Australia used to see. What did we see once a year? We used to watch golf, Clates, in the 80s. We got to see it on free-to-air TV, and now we see it every single week, and we see multiple tours. You know, I could watch four tournaments this week should I want to. What role has television played in a lot of this sort of rules stuff? It doesn't feel like we had these rules controversies quite so often 20 years ago. I know there were, I'm not saying that <laughs> there were never rules controversies, but are there more of them? I suppose this speaks a little bit to that TV viewers calling in things that they see, Shaq. Well, of course, they've played a huge role. The, the improvement of the cameras, the HD has played a role, the amount of hours they're on, uh, the uh, ability for people to look at things on a DVR at home, uh, the the number of super I mean look at Anna Nordquist that was that was a super high def camera that picked mm. that up I think wasn't that I don't even think that was a normal camera no, was, yeah, I don't think it was special. you know the the BizHub type uh, camera <laughs> here here's another one though for you so now I think what's really fascinating though for television uh, is with this new situation where uh, we we haven't the naked eye test, and then we also have the um, the element of the player. If something happens like happened at the U.S. Women's Open last year where the cameraman sees it and says, you need to take a look at this, that's now going to put the director and the producer mm. and the network in a bizarre position to say, well, do we show this? Because the only reason we're seeing this is that uh, we, ha- we zoom in on it or we see it in slow motion or we had the Konica Minolta BizHub camera out there that captures these unbelievable things. But if we show this, then we're going to we're going to we, it doesn't pass the naked eye test. So then if they don't show it, then does the rumor get out? Well, there was a thing, but they didn't show it. I mean, I, I, I think that is the m- most interesting element of this next wave of things that happen off of this decision is, is that is the position that television's now put into, to, to decide whether these things are uh, something they should show or not. And of course only made worse Shaq by the fact that virtually everybody, you know, certainly in the golf audience, golf viewing audience has, uh, has available at their disposable world, world, worldwide broadcast capability via their phone. <laughs> or, or their laptop. Right, so anybody right. who sees something, that you, and it, you can probably get the programs to do it, have to blow it up and zoom in yourself, just record it off the TV uh, and right. away it goes. And that, I think, is an issue partly. People who say that you shouldn't take calls from TV viewers, I think you open a Pandora's box where if you do that and then you have these videos circulating, if something blatant and Correct. nefarious and you haven't taken that evidence on board because you've said we don't want TV viewer call-ins, I think you create yep. a more serious problem. Do you do you think that has do you think that has more to do with how the game of golf is held in our own 
sort of esteem as opposed to other sports by golfers. Because think when ref, well, golfers, the yes. golf community, yeah. we expect perfection out of our rules. Mm-hmm. No other sport expects perfection. No, like there's there's ref mistakes. I mean, think of the number of times even now with trying to call a home run when it goes up over the foul pole, where they get that wrong, and half the, everyone in the in the stadium says it was wasn't a home run, and on TV they say it is a home run later. Well, all those sorts of things where. If in real time watching the game, no one on no one on the on the course or someone who's watching it on TV, a rules official on a booth, determines that under that new sort of eye test that any rules infractions happen, but then someone finds it a couple of days later or does it on high def and blows it up, that's no different to many of the mistakes that are made in all other sports. But we just have this expectation of sort of purity and perfection, which is probably a little bit unrealistic these days. But the sport. Doesn't it open itself up to that criticism, Matt, by, uh, you know, the, the PGA Tour and other other entities you mentioning that the beauty of our sport is that we have these great uh, uh, honorable athletes and we're more honorable than others. And uh, and I do believe that's true. But I also think by throwing that out there, maybe they've exposed themselves to a little bit more of the, the rest of the world seeing these things and, and, and mocking the game when, when they happen. Um. Possibly. I mean, there's some sort of things when you talk about the high def, def, and like the Sergio one is a classic example, right? The way the Masters handled that was just like, didn't move, move on. Now, you can still have the whole hubbub afterwards about, oh, did it, didn't it? Everyone's got their opinion, and depending on whether you like Sergio or dislike him is whether you think it moved or didn't move, basically. But that didn't affect the outcome of the Masters, did it? And that's exactly what we're talking about. Mm. Although the opinion of the winner... Uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, no, it's a can of worms. Isn't it? No, so so like, like that's what I mean. So that that's the exact situation happening again in a different tournament. It basically happened, and they said didn't move, didn't move on. The whole in- right. integrity though- of of golfing, though, all four of us here golfers, and again, audio format, but hands up, who hasn't called a penalty on themselves, and it's a kind of a badge of an honour in a way, isn't it, Matt? That. As golfers, you can oh, say, I've yeah. called penalties oh, on Greg myself. Chalmers. No one could say, you know. Greg Chalmers would go out of his way to call a penalty on himself. He mm. was the best at it. Um, it. It just got to what was a bit ridiculous. <laughs> Greg, mate, um, stop it. Because <laughs> they'd be like, no, Greg, that's not a penalty. You're like, you're sure? <laughs> I, re- I, think I, sh- I think I should get a penalty. I'll just sign for two extra anyway. Uh, <laughs> you know? Like, that's what it gets like. But, um, yeah, I, I just think that, you know, the ball oscillating or the intent of whether, let's just say Lexi said, look, the ball wasn't sitting still. So I needed to put it at the nearest possible point where it would where it would be at rest. Now, she could have said that straight afterwards and then you could have a whole argument about that and that nullifies her intent and all that sort of stuff. And But, you know, you could say under high definition, well, the ball wasn't moving. It's irrelevant really after the fact. Um, I don't think that affects the what we all think of Lexi, because that was how she saw it. Uh, wow. Except maybe Clades. Clades, you're very quiet there. <laughs> well, I, I just think she clearly moved the ball, and you can have no other interpretation of what happened that she, that she intended to move it for whatever reason. I mean, her hand moved. She, she, put the, she marked the ball, and she, her, hand moved the ball, her hand moved the ball across. She moved it. I mean, it's really hard. I mean, people say you can't put the ball back exactly where it was. It's really hard not to put it back exactly where it was. You actually have to make an effort to put it back somewhere else if you're paying attention. 
Now, maybe you know. So th- then, it was it careless or was it intentional? Yeah. Well, no, you can't she say knows can that. you, Clates? That's right. You, yeah. you can't say. You can argue about only it all you like, but you, you can never say. I mean, you, it certainly could be done. But better. I don't think that. I don't think not having the, you know, demanding of perfection doesn't affect the um, the ideal that golfers are honourable mm. and that they call penalties on. People will still call penalties on themselves. The difference between our sport and other sports is exactly that. Mm. Like in other sports, you know, baseball, you're trying to get as much catch signs, whatever, you know, put guys off. You know, in, in the in the slips in cricket, you're trying to you know, click your fingers as the ball goes by, see if you can't get a snicker, whatever it is. They're all trying to quote unquote cheat or gain an advantage through you know the rules. But golf will still always be held in high regard because we don't do that. Mm, if you're not, yeah, yeah. well, because yeah. I mean, the obvious case was Maradona when he. Handballed that yeah. for a goal in the World Cup. What's it? I mean, it was, I mean, that was blatant cheating. But you know, that's why golf's a better game because players just you don't do that. Mm. You know, and, but I don't think changing the rule, like like doing what the as far as having the eye test, which again is it just makes it more complex and more difficult. But I, I still don't think that saying that call-ins or people with high definition can't. Or the TV can't has to make that judgment call on whether, you know, they're going to show the footage. I don't think that goes against that ideal or principle. It just sort of shuts down this this effect on the actual tournament that we're playing at at that point. The game at your level is hard enough, isn't it, Matt? I suppose <laughs> without all of this stuff going on in the background too. Have you? Have you, do you feel that in 20 years in the game, the game's changed with the whole television and social media and the internet and all the rest of it as the game's kind of grown with more eyeballs? Has there been any sort of discernible change as a golfer when you go to tournaments week in and week out on the way things unfold? Or is it as golf's always been, but just with some added distractions perhaps? Yeah, I mean, just through my experience, things have just gotten busier around the tournaments. Obviously, it's more like at the venue. There's more stuff at the venue. There's more media. There's more, And there's more people commenting on everything you do good, bad, or indifferent, you know what I mean? It's like the uh, the, J- the Jason Duffner dropping his putter and, you know, everyone was doing a, a Joe Buck where it's just like, it's a despicable act from a despicable human being type thing when he talked about Randy Moss, you know, mooning the Dallas Star in the middle of um, the Cowboy, sta- um, Cowboy Stadium. It's just, you know, people have, it's the outrage meters on 10 and we're going to have an opinion one way or the other. That's the biggest difference. It's like you can just sort of be bumbling along doing something, get angry, throw a club, and then not realize that you're the worst human being on the planet all of a sudden. And that does affect you. Hmm. Yeah, well, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I can't imagine what it must be like. Was that Jason Duffner thing so bad? I didn't kind of get the outrage on that. Oh, really? Bad. I thought it was awful. I thought that was a terrible look for the game. But, but No matter what the situation was, whether it was a joke between him and the guy, that looked awful. That looked like a boss just being condescending towards an employee unnecessarily. That's what it looked like to me from the outside. Yeah. I don't know what the circumstances I don't understand. were. I, what, him, hang on. I don't, understand the, I don't understand the problem. What's huh? – players, caddies? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, wow. as you know, their evidence doesn't count, Matt, so I suppose. But in fact, that they're was a terrible there, look. They're not out there, are they? It's all part of one. Yeah. They, um, yeah that was a terrible look, I thought, Shaq. I, I sense you sort of felt that. Yeah. That, that just not a, not a great look. Yeah, just uh, a bad I, look. Maybe if it was – and if it was somebody else – they might have gotten a pass, but he's been kind of a uh, miserable looking on the golf course for about uh, two years and has refused to speak to the press. And And the sad part is fans really want to like him. And uh, he's interesting, they ask you, isn't he? How come, 
He's interesting. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> and he's a very when you talk to him, he's an interesting yeah. person to talk to. And so this whole sulking thing that's been going on for a while now is is that it became more apparent there, and it was it's just too bad mm. because uh, I want to like him. A lot of people want to like him, but gosh, it's like, geez, what 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 is what do you you're you're playing golf? You have a beautiful swing. It repeats, um, you know. Get over it. Let's yeah. go. Let's let's be. But happy. how ridiculous! That, how ridiculous that, that one kind of act. Well, and we don't really know what could can completely change your opinion of him. Of course. And as it was well, pointed out, some people, that's ridiculous. It might have been a He's running been joke between him and his acting. caddy. It's possible. I don't know, Matt. I don't awesome. know whether you know the inside story, but yeah. that was what perhaps it's some sort of running joke between him and his caddy. It didn't look like it, but that doesn't mean that wasn't the case. Mm. So. As you say, we make those judgments. How much responsibility do we have to take in the media, Shaq, for the way we cover the game now? There's less and less in-depth writing, I feel, about the game and more and more reactionary writing and just the whole notion of viral videos and that whole nonsensical side of the game, which doesn't interest me, but there's no question there's more of it in itself. How much responsibility do we bear for the outrage meter constantly needing to be on 10, as Matt described it? Uh, yeah, quite a bit, and it's... Um that there is such a a rush to get content up and and to just keep pushing stuff and getting clicks that uh, you know the Lexi situation was another one where it was uh, if you if you watched the responsible golf outlets struggled to get a quick grasp of it and I'm great with that I think that's phenomenal because nobody wanted to rush and and uh, come to these conclusions without having a little more input. Unfortunately, she didn't. We didn't get to hear from her, so that 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 hurt a little bit. But um, I think that that's uh, it's just a real danger how much that's going on now um, in in terms of having to just put things out there, whether they're right or wrong, because you can also go back and change it. Uh, fairly quickly too with the internet whereas with print you yeah, knew right. when you when that's you sent that thing off to the yeah. printing press it's it's in and so it changes yeah. the entire mentality it's like a scorecard check it couldn't be changed oh was, yeah you exactly. <laughs> can't get penalized two strokes but you can't have readers penalized exactly. clates what was it like i think we've discussed this before what, what do you notice about the difference in media coverage of the game now to perhaps when you were playing uh when the the, the mediums were different to this digital age that we live in yeah, you well, you, you read about the day's play the next day in the newspaper. I mean, now the newspaper is utterly irrelevant. No, one, everyone knows what happened twelve hours later, so there's no need to read about what happens. So, the, so there's less reporting on the play, and there's more get the story. What's the story? I mean, yeah, you know, there is no golf reporting on what happened on the golf course mm. because everyone knows what they they see it or they they, they watch the scores in real time. Or so, so the, the old days of reporting on what happened during the play of the previous days. There's none of that anymore. And what about the journos on tour clades? It seems that that's really changed. When you don't have newspapers, you don't have the regular... I think Doug Ferguson's probably the only legitimate beat writer left in golf from the Associated Press. And all of the players know him, and I'm sure, Matt, you must have spoken to Doug dozens of times and everybody knows who mm -hmm. he is and he's highly respected. Yep. Clades, there used to be 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 of those guys around the place. And now there's... Matt, I imagine you go to tournaments and people come and tell you they're well, from somewhere and you don't even know who they are you, that you're being interviewed. But what was there? I mean, I think we're kind of going back to – I mean, who used to just cover golf as a sports writer? I mean, nobody, well, yeah, right? You used to carry a bunch – no, like in the States, if you were covering a golf tournament, generally that was like your third or fourth thing you were doing that week. Um, 
I think golf has sort of gone the same way as all the other sports where you've got basically a 24-hour channel, now the golf channel. It has to provide content, so it has to come up with a bunch of things to talk about on slow weeks. So we start getting into issues and outrage and who's doing this and what do we think of that. The, the sort of the, the he said, she said, left-right kind of political discourse you get you know, we have shows created like that on the Golf Channel, and, and I think it's just really diluted. I think there's too many golf writers. There's too much golf information, and it's just hey, indiscernible easy. what's good and what's <laughs> not. No, I, well, I, do you no, know I what I mean? It's yeah, just I like, yeah. like, like every, anyone can be a, with an IP address and a laptop can, or a website can be a golf blogger or any sports blogger for that matter, and it doesn't necessarily mean it's the content's good. It's just we have more content and it's just very hard to wade your way through it and get to like interesting, um, interesting stories or, or things you'd want to, you'd want to read. So you just end up really not consuming any of it or I don't anyway. That's the way I feel. I was about to say you, you, you're clearly an intelligent bloke and you're clearly a consumer of, of, of media. Uh, and that's just from what you've just talked about there. That's pretty obvious. Do you find it hard to now find things that engage you? And when that happens, do you simply stop looking or, and I think this has kind of happened with State of the Game, not to put a feather in our cap, but we have this—we seem to have this very devoted audience. It's not very big, but, you know, we start getting messages on Twitter after four or five weeks. When's the next episode? What did somebody ask you recently, Clates? Have you guys fallen out? What's happened to State of the Game? <laughs> um, if, you, oh, yeah. if you do provide some quality, you won't get the million eyeballs you need to attract the advertising from the multinational companies, but will you get the people to come along? That's a media discussion, I guess, Matt, but I see well, you I as think... a consumer and you're going to decide those things well, anyway. Jeff could probably speak to this pretty pretty accurately, I'd imagine. But I know, like one of my favourite websites for sport was Grantland, right? Because I loved the writers. They had long, interesting, and they talked about sports, and I learned about sports. And I would read their ten, fifteen minute articles. That's way more interesting to me than you know a, a first take or whatever they have on ESPN over here, or or the you know the six hundred word articles that just get churned out on ESPN from probably good writers who were given the chance at Grantland or a few other long-form sites. And I think they had pretty dedicated following, but I don't know whether they're actually financially viable, but that's the sort of stuff I like to read. Um, I get annoyed when I, you know, like clickbait drives me crazy because you get sucked into it all the time. <laughs> that's right. Um, <laughs> you blame yourself in but, the end, but you can't help it, can yeah, you, sometimes? I mean, I'm not – I don't watch a lot of golf. There are a few tournaments that really draw me in. Obviously, the Masters is one. Um, but, like, I'm not a huge watcher of, you know, the golf channel. Well, I like watching – the old golf, funnily enough. I used to love the golf channel when it was just wall-to-wall. You know, here's the 1986 Kemper yeah. Open with Greg Norman. I could watch that all day. <laughs> For some reason, watching Jordan Spieth win doesn't interest me anymore. I don't know. <laughs> probably that says more to where I'm at in my game than it does to anything else. But I think Shaq would probably have, would have you know, would know exactly how that all works as far as from his side of it, like why the pressures to – to churn stuff out and get content out right. versus doing really good quality in-depth stories that might be more interesting. Like the old golf, remember, was it the Golf Digest that used to do the long-form oh, interviews that were always great? interviews are phenomenal. Yeah. You'd yeah. keep them and pull them out every two years and read them again. Yeah. Fantastic. And yeah, you don't see those. Those anymore. are a victim of space now. They shorten those in part because they just don't have enough pages. I mean, Golf Digest doesn't even include their uh, masthead anymore in the magazine. They're so strapped for, for pages that they actually can print. But, of course, Matt, it's all about clicks and, and uh, getting stuff up quickly and having a take. And uh, the, the, it, and, and part of it I, I will defend in that it's hard to read long form on 
uh, a screen. screen. It just okay. it's still not there in terms of the the reading experience. There's something about uh, the, the 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 iPad and and other things that just makes you. I don't know. It it it's just it's hard to keep Do your you, eyes on it long. Is that generational? That's more because of our generation. Oh, yeah, okay, it's generational. Yeah. Has to be right because there's not anyone young like. I'm 42. I can't imagine anyone 35 or younger that's picked up a piece of paper. No, I no. agree. I absolutely agree. So that yeah. Although that that said, they're loving vinyl records. Um, <laughs> yeah, a, you know, millennials are bringing vinyl back. Oh, that that that's a, I don't that's know. a whole other topic. Yeah. The, the, I don't know. The, I don't know the, if it's the, a no, fad, well, right? No, 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 that's the first generation that actually is going to be worse off than their parents. So they're looking for nostalgia. So they look back to the good old days of the baby boomers of the 80s and 90s where things are on the up and they cling to that as opposed to realizing that their their lives are just going in the toilet. They've got no no future. <laughs> it's... Uh... <laughs> Gee, here I thought I had this romantic notion. It was yeah. they, they enjoyed opening up and looking at the liner notes and, and putting it on it's the nostalgia. player. And, oh, okay. There is something to that, isn't there, Matt? I mean, everything's kind of been done. Hasn't it? it really has been done. Uh, everything, short hair, long hair, short skirts, long hair. everything's <laughs> been done. And you have a generation of people now whose only thing left is really this digital thing, this internet thing, and moving from one to the next in a, in a really sort of quick way. And it, it is a different world. There's no question... Uh, no question about that, I don't think. I, I don't think we solved anything today, guys. Oh, the one thing I did want to ask you about, Clates, I'll come to you on this. I saw something interesting, and this is just specifically on ball marking, which seems to be one of these areas where, where people like to focus. A couple of solutions that I've seen suggested that probably make a bit of sense. Why can't players just be issued with a widget at the start of the week that's impossible to put the ball back anywhere else after they've marked it, but from where they picked it up from? How would you feel about that, Clates? Oh. <laughs> um. Nanny state? <laughs> Anybody? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I actually, it's interesting that I'm, I was fooling around. I, I, was, I was marking the ball with a T the other day because I didn't have a coins. The T is actually a great way to mark because you can see the hole. You actually see where the hole is. What so the, marking with a T is kind of. The hole that the T makes. Wait, wait, what are you talking You can see <laughs> the hole? I don't know what he's talking about. You've well, you stick it to He sticks it in the ground. Yeah. So you can only see the hole when you right. pull it out, which is after you've put the ball back. Pull it out. Oh, the hole the in the hole. ground. Okay, I guess. Yes. You can see okay. the hole where the T was. Right, so, okay. you know, once you move the coin, you can't see anything. But if you mark with a T, you can see where the hole was. So if you wanted to make sure players were, that would be one way of more accurately replacing the ball because you can actually see where the where the T was. I had no idea Clates was such a stickler on the on the <laughs> yeah, no, of the ball. Wow. I, was anal for, I was a nut when it came to it. Now, speaking of great writing, has, has anyone read, read Tom Callahan's book on Arnold Palmer? No. I've read a, a little, just sampled a little bit. I I, uh, I sampled it and I sent off questions at the request of his editor for a Q&A, but I, they never got answered. So uh, I haven't okay. gone back to read it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's an interesting uh, the parts I've read were great yeah, I, think, I thought it was great I, I mean I read it and, and I, it goes back I could never read that book on a screen It would, but I read it in a yeah. day I mean I, I thought it was great yeah. but I mean mm. you know you could never read that on a on a on an e-reader but as a book you, I just lay there and read it in a, one go it was fantastic Mm. I read your book, uh, Grounds for Golf, on an iPad shack and uh, loved the Did book. Did you? Hated the experience on the iPad. I'm not a yeah. iPad book reader. It was, yeah. 
It just, there's something about it, the backlighting also. It just doesn't work. It doesn't the backlighting, and then you're thinking, oh, there's something, there's real-time things to yeah. read about. <laughs> just check Twitter uh, while I the turn the page. That. And, yeah. That's why people love the Kindle, yeah, because it, they can't go do that. No, sort of. Uh, now, Rod, I, I think I did have... it. Oh, go oh, ahead. Sorry. I think I, I read your book on the iPad too, but that was because it was like, Five bucks as opposed to nineteen. Right. I think that also <laughs> helps. And you can do it on a plane and in an airport as a whole. It's, it's, it's easier to lug around, yeah. and you can check your emails in between and all the rest of it. Chat now, about speaking it. of Rod, you mentioned airplanes. We can't have Matt on and not hear his, <laughs> his tale of woe. Those poor drivers just just was that a was that a Sicilian message? Uh, I did think you do so. Oh, yeah, that, I didn't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I kind I mean, of those were clean brakes. Maybe. They looked like in the same spot. I mean, it looked very calculated to me. <laughs> Well, the crazy thing about it was, you know, I got in here at whatever midnight, got to the hotel. So you flew United to where? Leon in Mexico. Okay. So Charlotte, Charlotte, where did I go? Charlotte, Houston, Houston, Leon, and um, so I unzip my bag. I'm looking at my bag. I'm like, what they unscrew all my heads for? Well, there must have been customs. And then I realised, oh, hang on, two of my clubs don't have screwing. Heads, they're like glued. And I'm like, oh no! So I'm like, where the hell are the heads? They're still in the head covers. Oh, but they're all co- the head covers were still kind of ripped. Both, all the woods were broken. But the crazy thing was, the driver was smashed. Like the, it had been caved in from the top. So I think what happens, it's obviously fallen off. It's been run over, or it's got caught up under the wheel of the car, mm. and they've just gone, oh well, just chuck it in. Um, and that was that. And I, you know, I had a bit of a joke about it, and then ended up on TMZ, which is pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, did you? What, so, what did the airline say? Um, well, I, I didn't because it was. I'd, I'd already. I'm 30 minutes from the airport in Mexico. I'm not going back to the airport to file a claim. They're free clubs, and it was. Um, you know, that's not right. I'm not going to go and file a claim to to get um, compensation for my broken clubs. I mean, the annoying thing was that my forwards, like one I've had for 10 years, is like my favorite mm. one. Um, so that's a bit of a bummer, but luckily those two are broken off at the hosel and no damage was done to the head, so I should be able to get the shaft out and reshaft them. Yeah. I basically just sent them an email saying, look, it's an unfortunate accident. I know it happens. Um, Gosh. Thanks for reaching out. Well, I mean, what else am I going to do? i just got to get on with it. I said, unfortunately, you know, one of those clubs is one of my favorites, but um, what's done is done. I'll just try and deal with what I've got, but thanks for reaching out because I didn't file, file a claim at all because I couldn't be bothered going back to the airport. So they reached out to me on Twitter um, because they were getting blown hammered up. Because yeah. <laughs> you can drop them in it. Uh, it's just unbelievable. I'm like if I had tweeted that on Delta or American, I probably had, would have had two people comment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, t- timing is everything, isn't it, in, uh, in some ways. Matt, let's just back up a bit. Yeah. Did you say you've had the same forward for 10 years? Oh, I think so. Is yeah, that a pretty close. It was the That's RBZ – is the white is the first rocket ball? So what's that? That's probably seven or eight years. I'd what say. are we? Two thousand seventeen. Yeah, I'd say about yeah 20, 2010, somewhere around. Yes. Yeah, is that rare? Yeah, it's probably around there. It wouldn't be many of you. How um, many cars are carrying? Well, I don't know. Well, Steve Allen was still trying to use a rescue that had a burner bubble bubble shaft oh, from geez. the nineties. Wow, the bubble. <laughs> and, oh. and the crazy, the crazy, the best thing about that is, is that every time I played with him, he'd never hit a good shot with it, <laughs> but he just. <laughs> He just like couldn't go into anything. He's now got a new one, but he's notorious for like hanging onto his irons forever. I mean, there's a few guys, but most guys 
are probably contractually obligated to go straight into the new stuff. Yeah, indeed. Well, the whole Kevin Chappell story was interesting, wasn't it? The guy who was free to go and try whatever he wanted and did all that, and his game went down. He went back to the stuff that he'd been using and found a combination, and bang, he wins. I mean, there's more to it than that, obviously, but a yeah. golfer and their golf clubs are a, an interesting relationship, aren't they, Matt? You know, probably less so yeah. than perhaps in Clates' era, but you find one sometimes anything, oh, you never get rid of that club. Oh, some. Some guys are hilarious, like Frosty, where he'd put like one piece of lead tape under the grip and be like, "Oh, now, oh, it's good now." You know, I mean, work. You could not make, you couldn't feel a difference or anything. And then you had Tom Lehman, like he's he'd worn out the grip, basically to the point it was probably illegal, <laughs> but yeah. he'd worn out the grip to where the thumb was through to the shaft, and it was like a grip reminding club. But he just loved that driver so much and didn't want to change the grip because he was worried that it might stuff up the driver type thing. And we all, I don't know, guys, putter grips are like that. Well, People will not change putter. He? he had the ping putter. Won't change their putter. Yeah, they won't change their putter grips. Yeah, because they're worried about how it's going to change the feel. Yeah. Clates, yeah. were you I like that? I imagine those. you would have been like that, Clates, for sure. Yeah, uh, no, not really. I mean, I, I mean, you know, obviously back when we used wooden woods, everyone had favourite woods that, you know, if United had snapped off the shaft of your favourite persimmon driver, they probably ruined the club. You wouldn't have been very happy about it. But now it's just disposable. Golf equipment now is all just disposable junk, shoes, bags, mm. clubs. You just get mm. just get another one. But mm. yeah. you know, in the old days when it was when they were when good sets of irons were hard to find, it was yeah you you, you had to lose them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one last point on the United thing. I mean, they were lucky. It was me in, in retrospect because I'm coming off wrist surgery. I haven't played for five months. Who knows? I don't even know what my clubs feel like anymore. I mean, could you imagine if it had happened to someone, like, well, let's say Dustin Johnson or someone going into the Masters on a hot streak and they've got their favourite driver and their favourite club and they just all get obliterated? I mean, geez, you'd, you'd feel pretty sick. If Dustin's flying United, Matt, something's gone terribly wrong. Well, you know, <laughs> but wrong, I know exactly wrong, wrong choice. Yeah, I know exactly what you're well, saying. Maybe, yeah, absolutely. Well, maybe his caddy was bringing his clubs yeah, that's right. for him. Okay, the, the clubs travel cattle class and the player. <laughs> exactly. Player just don't, exactly. Matt, you've been very generous with your time. What is happening with you? You mentioned that you'd had research. You haven't played for five months. What's the go with Matt Goggin? Yeah, I, end, I had an injury the end of the year before. I, I can't even count these days what year it was. What would that be? End of 2016 in December. I, I, I tore my TFCC in a tendon. And I probably didn't get a great diagnosis straight away. I was just told to rest and it'll be fine. And I tried to play through it last year and it just was not getting any better. Then you start having technical issues and confidence issues where it hurts at impact and you start, you know, kind of having that bracing or backing away because it hurts your wrist every time. Um, Because I'd never really had an injury before, I just assumed it was going to get better because, you know, you – we all have niggles where you'll be warming up. It's like, oh, my back's gone. And then, you know, you go for a walk and then you're like, oh, no, I'm good. And then two or three holes into the round, you forget you even had a sore back. So I kept on expecting it to do that. But then by the end of the week, it would just be sore again. And then I'd start, I'd have a rest. And so I got into that pattern and just had a miserable year, played terrible. And then I finally went and saw another hand specialist in Australia. And I think they got a little bit better images. And he said pretty much straight away that, you know, you're going to have to have surgery on this at some point. Um, if you're playing well, maybe wait until you've got your card locked up and then have it. Um, but you're going to have to have it sometime in the next 12 months. And I'd lost my card, lost all my status really, but through trying to play through the pain. So I thought I might as well get it done as soon as possible. So I went straight in after um, the PGA in Australia. I played that last tournament and uh, got the surgery on Monday and it was sort of a 
they told me four or five months and it's five months later and it's it's still a bit sore but it's nothing like what it was before and it's healing and hopefully i can get back to playing some form of golf i recognize great doctor who understands tour status that's a fantastic find right there but that's a <laughs> yeah. scary uh, scary decision for a golfer matt surgery on you know a wrist and all that sort of stuff yeah. you big decisions yeah, and I think because it was put to me in a way, it's like, well, how's the, it's not like the – you need to return it to normal anatomy because it's not functioning. And other parts of my wrist were starting to compensate to the point where I was starting to get RSI. And he said, once you get it in that part of your wrist for a golfer, you basically you're done. So you have, to, um, you have to return it back to normal anatomy. So the tendons in and around your hand are doing all their jobs correctly and not – One's not compensating for the other. So it was sort of put to me in a way that um, you're going to have to have it done. So when it's like that, and when you've come off a terrible year and you're looking for answers and you don't know what to do, you'll, you know, it it seemed like a no-brainer to give me another chance to play. I know it couldn't have been much fun for you, Matt, and we know that you're one of the most physically talented players to come out of Australia. We wish you all the best. It's terrific of you to take some time for today, mate. wish you all the best for 2017 and getting back to where we know that, uh, that you can play. Thanks for taking some time today, mate. Thanks, gentlemen. Yeah. And uh, Shaq, right, you thanks, Matt. always terrific. Yep. I didn't even get to ask you about your interview with Jay Monaghan, which I haven't had a chance to listen to yet. Is it interesting? Should I go and listen to it on Shaq House? Yeah, just don't comment on me typing in the back. <laughs> I was about okay. to play I it. Feel, I feel bad about I'm it, sorry. but we had to play traffic cop. But it was good. He was, um, yeah, I think we caught him kind of in the middle of uh, meetings. And so he was very locked in. I mean, I've spent enough time around Jay to know he's a pretty – laid back uh and, and and can has a good sense of humor and all that and he's 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 pretty much in commissioner mode he's obviously watching what he what he says but um yeah i think he gave us yeah. a few yeah it is yeah i mean it's it's um, you say one wrong thing or you say mm-hmm. something the wrong way and 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 players will hear it and or somebody will pick on it so he has to watch what he says and um and i thought he was interesting he he um I, he he was pretty honest about really. I think the next big thing uh, format wise is to try to get the tournament of champions saved and have the women there. And because uh, I, I tried to get him going on on what's next after the Zurich in terms of um, uh, maybe enhancing things. And I also he, he also just did not go anywhere on the USGA RNA decision in terms of <laughs> um, uh, how this could impact players and put their players in a tough spot. Because I think ultimately the reason we got that decision this week was. One of or all the tours said, "Look, we're we're tired of you doing this uh, to our players, of of putting them in this position, and we need to get this buttoned up." And and uh, but he he didn't go too far on that. But he was interesting on a lot of other things. Yeah, that I must think, have been so. a real shock to you, Shaq, that he didn't open up and spill the beans. About the, well, you, know, you never know. I mean, it, it, with some of these, I think I, I just sense one of those tours is very fired up about this uh, situation and what the position it's putting the players in and you never know who which one it is um but i mean he doesn't he clearly doesn't disagree that that this need needed work and needs to continue to be worked on yeah and we'll no doubt the rule won't be the last rule snafu we talk about i'm sure but uh it's certainly been a doozy sadly sadly yeah but uh it's kind of the nature of the the game and television the coverage and all those things we've already discussed so let's not do another hour on that clay it's been terrific to have you along today as well as always i feel like we never hear enough from you but uh i get the joy of talking you you hear enough from me it's fine (laughs) i probably do but the listeners don't (laughs) been good to have you aboard today too and that wraps up episode 72 of state of the game hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed bringing it to you and we look forward to your company again when we do it next time here on State of the Game. State of the Game is a Talk and Golf production. 
theme music, Writer's Retreat, provided by Lloyd Cole. Visit www.lloydcole.com for more information. For more golf podcasts, log on to www.talkandgolf.com.